This morning, we're going to look at that text a lot closer. Romans 11, verses 11 to 24. Now, as you might have noticed from that reading, that text can be a little hard to follow at times. It seems to run a few different directions. There are also a lot of cycles in that text where like, this leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to that. It also contains some interesting illustrations. One about baking. One long one about horticulture. But even though the section's a bit long, a little complex, it's all connected to one thing. What is that? It's all connected to the opening question in verse 11. The very first words of the text. When Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Okay, everything, everything in this text today is connected to that question. Now, if you can remember, if you were here last week, okay, the very same thing happened in the first 10 verses of the chapter. Those 10 verses also started with a very similar question. Look, look back at it and see what I mean. Okay? Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what's Paul's answer to that? By no means. And then look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And what's the answer to that? Also, by no means. All right, so those are very similar questions. And in both sections, that question like shapes and unifies everything in the rest of the discussion. Okay. But there's a difference between the two questions. And do you know what it is? Okay, what, what do you think? Look at the questions again. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? They, they seem similar. They're both about Israel. If you, if you haven't been here lately, this, this section in Romans, we've just walk, been walking through Romans for a long time, and Romans 9 through 11 is a lot about, about Israel, Israel in the past and the present, and this chapter about Israel in the future. Both of these questions are about Israel, but there's a difference in what Paul's getting at with the two questions. Okay, and what, what is that? So in, in verse 1, Paul is asking more or less, has God rejected Israel completely? And what's his answer? His answer is no, and what's his proof? Do you remember what Paul points to? Has God rejected Israel completely? What does Paul say? No way, because look at, look at me. I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, people of Abraham, and, and I love Jesus. And then Paul says, and, and look back even in the Old Testament, in Elijah's day, which was like the worst time in Israel's history, Elijah really felt like he was the only one left in all of Israel. What did God say to him? Look, I've kept 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And what's the point of all of that? Whether it was in Elijah's day or in Paul's day or even in our own day today, God has always been saving some Jewish people, some ethnic Israelites. God has not rejected Israel completely. He's continued to preserve a small group within the larger group. And what's that small group called? Paul calls this the remnant. And you'll see this is in Romans 11, verse 5, which is kind of the heart of that thing we talked about last week. Look at 11, 5. So too, at the present time, 
there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, so in verse 1, Paul's asking something like, has God rejected these people completely? But what about in verse 11? Take a look at the question again. Yes. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What is the point of that question? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, first, who is the they? Who are they in that text? Those they's in that text are Israel as a whole. Okay? Israel has stumbled. Now, that's not true of every single Israelite, is it? No. Why not? Because God's still saving some, like, like Paul or, or like people who love Jewish people who love Jesus today. But it is true of Israel as a whole. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have stumbled over Jesus. This has been the picture throughout Romans 9 through 11. But here's the key question Paul's asking. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, again, what exactly is the point of that? I think there are two things Paul's getting at with that question. First, Paul was asking if Israel's failure is simply so that they would fall. In other words, is that all that God's up to in this situation? Is the only purpose of Israel's failure so they would fall flat on their face and be judged? Is that, is that all that God is doing? Or is God maybe doing something good even through their terrible failure? I think that's part of what he wants to talk about. But the second thing I think Paul is asking is if Israel's failure means that Israel has fallen forever. So, or perhaps I could put it this way. I think verse 1 is, has God rejected Israel completely? And verse 11 is, has God rejected Israel permanently? Okay. Now, let's see what Paul says about this. Verse 11 again. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the nations, to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So perhaps you can see now what I'm talking about. Paul's asking if Israel's failure is simply so that they would fall. What's his answer? No way. Instead, what has happened through Israel's failure? And through their rejection of Jesus, what has happened in the world? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now again, Paul's talking about Israel as a whole. Not every single Israelite has fallen, but most of Israel has. And what has God done through that? What's happened through their trespass? He says, salvation's come to the nations. As Paul's thinking back to like even what he's seeing in his own day in the church, what does he see? Israel's rejection of Jesus has led unexpectedly to what? to massive amounts of Gentile people coming to Jesus and finding in him stuff they didn't even know they were supposed to look for. Now, how exactly has that happened? Paul doesn't spell it out, but we could think of a few things, probably. Like the initial rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people, that led ultimately to what in Jesus' life? It led ultimately to the cross, which is what God used to bring us forgiveness 
and to bring us to himself. But it's not just that. I mean, if you read through like the story of the book of Acts, for example, you find that it was actually Jewish opposition to the early church that forced the early Christians to do what? To run and to scatter throughout the Roman world. And, and as they ran and as they fled, what did they take with them? They took the gospel with them. It was in their hearts, on their lips, and that's how the gospel even spread. But what's the point? Israel's failure isn't simply so they get judged. Now, God is up to something. He's been doing something good, even through their terrible failure. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But notice that isn't the end of that verse. Okay, so look back at verse 11 again. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Okay, so Israel's failure leads to the salvation of the nations, but that's not the end of the story. Why? Because the salvation of the nations is supposed to lead to what? Paul hopes that it will make Israel jealous. Now, a question about that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? For Israel to become jealous. I'm not sure if there are many scenarios where it is good to try to provoke someone to jealousy. Like maybe you can think of one. I did not think of any good examples. Okay? But Paul seems to think in this text that that would be a good thing. But what is he even talking about? What's he picturing happening? Do you have a picture in your mind? Salvation comes to the nation so that it makes Israel jealous, and that's a good thing? Like what, what is he envisioning? I think Paul's hope is that his fellow Jews will see God doing such amazing things among the Gentiles that they'll get so jealous that they'll be like, I've got to have a part in that too. I think that's what Paul's envisioning, but we'll see more on that in a moment. Now look at verse 12. It says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so that verse repeats some of what the last verse said. <clears throat> but there's something new in it, too. Did you notice what it was? So this text today, you have to look very closely at these, these verses and think about them. Okay? So just so we're on the same page here, who is the there, the T-H-E-I-R, in verse 12? The theirs. This is not a trick question. The theirs are a reference again to Israel as a whole. And what does Paul point out again? Their trespasses led to what? Riches for the world. That's just like what he said in the last verse. And then he says, and their failure has led to riches for the nations. And of course, Paul isn't saying every single Gentile will get God's blessings more than he is saying that every single Israelite has fallen. He's talking about these two groups as a whole. And, and he's thinking about it, and he wants us to think about it. He says, look, their failure has brought incredibly good things for us. And then he throws something new out there that he has not said before in Romans. He, he wants you to think about something. He says, if, if that's happened, then how does the verse end? He says, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? What's, what's that about? 
What does that mean? Okay, at the risk of being annoying here again, uh, let, let's be clear. Who is that there in that phrase? How much more will their full inclusion mean? Like that has to be the same people as the there that's been throughout the text already. Right? This is talking about Israel as a whole, just like all the other ones. So what is Paul saying? He's, he's saying something like this. Look, if their failure has led to incredible blessings for the world, then what would their full inclusion mean for the world? I mean, if Israel's failure led us to get blessings better than anything we could have imagined, then what would their full inclusion lead to? That's the point of the verse, but it kind of leaves some questions unanswered. Why? For one thing, Paul just asked the question and he doesn't answer it. He just, says, he just kind of throws it out there. What would that mean? He'll answer it a little bit later. But the other reason the verse raises questions is it's not completely clear what he means by their full inclusion. Like, what do you think that's talking about? This is the first time he has said anything like this in Romans. What do you think he's talking about? Their full inclusion. At minimum, Paul wants us to, to consider that perhaps, maybe, there will be a day when God will do something more with Israel than he's doing today. Perhaps there will be a day someday when God will do something more than what he's doing now with just a small group, with a remnant. And, and what does he want us to ponder? He says, what would that lead to? Because if their failure brought incredible good things to us, what would their success lead to for the world? Now, it would be nice if Paul continued that thought, but he like completely goes off and talks about something else for a little while. Okay? He wants to talk to you Gentiles like us, all you Gentiles out there. Look at verse 13. It says, now I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my, Jews, my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And I love this. Paul breaks off the story with no warning, and then he just says, I want to talk to you Gentiles for a minute, because he thinks most of the church is Gentiles, right? Like today. He says, I want to talk to you for a minute. And did you catch what he said? He basically says, now listen, I know I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I know Jesus called me to that, and I'm not complaining about that. But listen, I want all of you to know that I work really hard among you for them, because I love them. Do you see that? I mean, he says, I, I magnify my ministry among you with my eyes on them in order to, to, to make what happen? To somehow make them jealous so that more of them get saved. Again, that Paul's hope is that other Jewish people will see what's happening like here among non-Jewish people where they see God's blessing and God's work and the working of God's spirit and they'll become so provoked by that that they'll be like, I've got to learn more about that. I want in on that too. And Paul, Paul as quickly as he like jumps off into that, he jumps back. Okay? And that's the end of that like little discussion. Now verse 15. He, he says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean if not life from the dead? Now this is interesting. All right. So look at verse 12 and look at verse 15. Okay. They're almost the same thing. Verse 12, what does it say? If their 
Trespass means riches for the world. Look at verse 15. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Who's the there? That's Israel. Okay. Look at the end of verse 12. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Look at the end of verse 15. What will their acceptance mean? Except for life from the dead. Okay. Israel's failure has led to something good. But that's apparently not the end of the story. There's apparently something still in store for Israel. But did you also notice the difference in how the verses end? Verse 12, he just says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He doesn't say like what it would mean. He just says, how much more would it mean? In verse 15, the, or 15, what does he say though? What will their acceptance mean? And he gives the answer. If not life from the dead. Okay, if God has brought salvation and reconciliation to sinners like us through Israel's rejection, then what will it mean for the world when God one day brings Israel back to himself? What will their acceptance mean if not life from the dead? What is he talking about? It's interesting. What do you think he's talking about? Right now, when I think of Jewish people as a whole, Again, not every Jewish person. Think of Israel as a whole. They're known, especially in the church, for their rejection of Jesus. But one day, someday that could change. And what would that lead to? Paul says it would lead to what? Life from the dead. What's he talking about? In short, I think he's saying this will lead to the final resurrection. This will lead to the end of the world as we know it. This will lead to the dawning of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what I think. But I'll admit, Paul doesn't spell it all out right here. But whenever that happens, that will lead to the fullness of the kingdom, to the dawning of the new day. But for now, let's talk about baking and horticulture. Okay, so verse 16. So if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now that seems sort of random. Of course, these are illustrations, so they are not intended to be miscellaneous remarks about first century baking practices and horticulture. But what are the illustrations about? Do you ever look at that verse? Do you ever read that verse? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root's holy, so are the branches. What's, it, what are, what's he talking about? Illustrating, shedding light on, on something. <laughs> right. What exactly? Okay. I think they're both pointing out the same thing, which is that there's a connection between the first portion of something and the whole thing. Okay, for example, Paul's thinking first about dough that would be offered like in Old Testament offerings. And you take this first part of it and you offer it as holy to the Lord. And he says that, that impacts the rest of the lump. Like the whole lump is now set apart as well or something like that. Now that's a fine illustration, but I actually think Paul likes his second illustration better. So he talks a lot more about the second illustration. He says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, there's a connection. The first part of something has an effect on the whole thing. But he likes this illustration better because a root actually shapes and sustains all the stuff that comes out of it. And that's why he likes this one better. And he's going he's to chase after this illustration for the, for the rest of the text today. Okay, but, but this is nice, but what is he talking about? 
Now there's, there's, some, there's some debate obviously about this, like what the first batch of dough is, what the root is. But what I want to focus on is that the whole lump or the branches, that's, it's clear what that is in these illustrations. The whole lump or the branches, this is in his, in his illustration, this is Israel as a whole. Because okay? look at what he says. So let's, let's read it. And I'll just try to help you follow this. I think this is the easiest thing to follow in the text today. Okay? So take a look at it. Verse 16 again. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off. Okay, he's going to keep going. But just pause right there. What's that about? Who are those branches that have been broken off? from the root that they used to be connected to. What do you think? Think about what he's been talking about. Who are the branches that have been broken off from the root that they used to be connected to? That, that would be most Jewish people, right? most Israelites. They used to be naturally connected to a nourishing root, and now they're not. They've been broken off. Okay, but let me ask someone else. Why does Paul say that only some of the branches have been broken off? In other words, why doesn't he say all of the branches were broken off? It's because some of them are still connected. Right? Who's that? That would be the remnant. Like people like him, who, still, who love Jesus. Okay? Most are broken off, but not all of them. Okay, now, let's, now let's keep going in the story. Okay? Verse 17, again. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Okay? I love this illustration. Who is the you in that text? Who do you think? I said the you is you. The you is, is us. Okay? We're called a wild olive shoot. That's us. It's, it's Gentiles like us. People who had no natural connection to the blessings. In other words, okay, what has happened? God has reached out in mercy and, and maybe if I want to stretch this just a little bit, broken us off from the nasty roots we were connected to. And in some amazing way has like grafted us in to this awesome root right alongside the Jewish branches that are still there. Okay. In other words, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians share in the very same root. Now, this is, by the way, a great picture of Christian unity in the midst of ethnic diversity. Like, this is an incredible picture. But now for some application. Okay, look at what Paul says to all you Gentiles out there. Verse 18. He says, so don't be arrogant toward the branches. Okay, this is Paul calling out Gentile Christians. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. Toward which branches, do you think? Maybe toward the natural branches, the ones right next to you in your church. Okay? If there's like, because there's Jewish and Gentile Christians in the same churches in Rome. But I think especially, don't be arrogant toward which branches, the ones that have been broken off and thrown away, thrown away, thrown off to the side. Why would we be prone to pride? Keep reading, verse 18. He says, if you are arrogant, remember 
It's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And Paul's like, and I know what you're going to say. You're going to be tempted to say this. Hey, hey, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Paul's been around Gentiles like us plenty, and he knows the human heart, and he, know, and he, he knows what we're prone to think. Hey, look, God broke them off and threw them off to the side because he wanted us. God got rid of those branches because he really wanted us instead. Verse 20, Paul says, true enough. That's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand where you stand through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. <laughs> okay. Now, by the way, a text like this, okay, you can tell, if you, if you think about this, a text like this should have rooted out all anti-Semitism from the church from its earliest days. Unfortunately, that has not always been the case. But you can see that. I mean, Paul is going right after that. But you can see what Paul is doing. He knows we might think they were broken off so we could be grafted in. That's true as far as it goes. But listen, they were not broken off because God thought we were so awesome. Okay. They were broken off. Why? Because they just wouldn't believe. And the only way you're standing where you're standing today is how? Through faith through trusting Jesus. So Paul says, do not become proud. Rather, fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches when they wouldn't believe, neither will he spare you, I think, if you stop believing, I think is the idea, verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen away in unbelief, but God's kindness to you. If you continue in his kindness. You see, God saves and God judges. God does not do only one. And as Paul says, behold the kindness and the severity of God. God is not a God to be messed with. He will judge the proud, the defiant, those who will not believe. On them all, the severity of God will fall. But if you will humble yourself before God, throw yourself in faith on his son, you will experience nothing but the kindness of God. But one more time, Paul wants us to press beyond today to the future. Verse 22 again, he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And he says, and even they, and who's the they? It's got to be Israel. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, like Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into like a really good cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? One more time, it becomes apparent that for Paul, Israel's story isn't over yet. The final chapter in their story has not yet been written. But more on that next week. I want to step back from the text today. I want to, I want to think about that opening question again. In verse 11, 
Paul says, I ask, did they stumble? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did Israel stumble simply so they'd be judged? Is that all God was up to? And Paul's answer? No. God's done incredible things even through their failure. But also, does Israel's rejection of Jesus mean that Israel's fallen forever? What do you think Paul's answer to that is? Because the answer to that is no. But we'll see more on that next week. But for today, I want to I think about what we should do with a text like this. This is, again, like the text last week, the text this week, these are not like immediately, you know, apparent what we're supposed to do. I think they're interesting texts. But they're hard for us sometimes to know what to do. And, but, but this one's interesting because I think Paul actually tells us about three or four things that we should do as Gentile churches, or as a Gentile church, okay? One is about something we should know, okay? I think we should know that God can and often does use human failure and human sin to bring about something good. The case in point in this text is that God has used Israel's failure and rejection of Jesus to throw open the door to mercy to us. That does not mean their sin was good or that they're not accountable for it. Far from it. But it does show us something about the power of God and the goodness of God. A God who can use even human failure and sin. In this case, even the horrible treatment of his own son to bring about something good. There's also something we should see in the text. Paul says, behold what? The kindness and the severity of God. Have you seen that today? The kindness of God toward those he saves so mercifully and the severity of God toward those he judges justly. God is not a God to be messed with. And some things that we should do from the text related to this, fear God. This is all over the Old Testament. But if you look for texts about the fear of the Lord in the New Testament, there's not a whole lot of them. Doesn't mean it's not important, but here's an example of that. It says, don't be proud. Instead, fear. God is approachable. He invites us to come to us. He is our Father, but we also must never get over the majesty of God. We must stand back in awe of him. His wisdom, his power, his kindness, and even his severity on those who simply will not believe. And then lastly, I think the challenge in this text is to remain in the kindness of God. Do you see that in the text? If you remain in his kindness, how do you do that? By continuing to humbly trust Jesus. So on the one hand, if you're outside of God's kindness today, because in this text, God's kindness is something you can be like in or something you cannot be in. And so if you're not in God's kindness today, I first want to say there's, there's a lot of room in here for you. 
You just come to him humbly, not with pride, but with humility, in repentance. You call on Jesus for mercy and pardon, and you are welcomed into his kindness. But then if you already find yourself today standing within the kindness of God, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant toward those who are not in his kindness. Do not think it is because of how great you are or how attractive you were that you find yourself standing where you're standing. You stand where you stand only because of the mercy of God in Jesus. And you stand where you stand only by continuing to trust in someone much better than you. So keep trusting Jesus. Don't be arrogant against those who haven't yet. And you keep holding on to Jesus humbly. This is how we remain in the kindness of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for for different kinds of texts, even in the Bible, that stretch us and challenge us. And I thank you for the joy it is just to walk week by week through your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts in, in all the ways that you want to today. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to your word, that you would be able to, to bring forth great fruit and faithfulness in our lives from what we've heard today. We thank you especially for your kindness to us in Jesus. I pray you will help us to remain in that kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.